Okay, we're back in the Sermon on the Mount. We're getting ready to start Matthew 7 today. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. And this is the famous passage on judging or not. Um, The connection uh, between what Jesus says here and what precedes has been somewhat difficult to to discern uh, for many commentators. And it is difficult to discern, at least at first glance. Uh, I think John Stott may be somewhere on the right track when he writes this. The connecting thread which runs through the chapter leading up to this, however loosely, is that of relationships. It would seem quite logical that, having described a Christian's character, influence, righteousness, piety, and ambition, Jesus should concentrate finally on his relationships. And that's what we're going to begin seeing mostly today. He says, for the Christian counterculture is not an individualistic but a community affair. And we've seen that in our study on the Sermon on the Mount, haven't we? And relations both within the community and between the community and others are of paramount importance. I think that's certainly true what he's saying. But I think as we'll see in our examination of the passage this morning, there's at least one, I think, very clear connection to the preceding context that may prove important. As I read the passage to you from the New King James Version, see if you can't pick out, I know it's been at least a few weeks since we've studied the Sermon on the Mount, but see if you can't pick out what the connector is that might be, the prominent connection there might be in these verses to what came before, particularly in chapter 6. I begin reading in in verse 1, and, and of course, I'll reveal to you what I think it is through the course of the teaching, what this connector is. But see if you can figure it out before I say it later. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye But do not consider the plank in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Let's take a moment to pray before we try to unpack these verses and see what they've got to teach us. Holy Father, I do thank you for your great love for us. I thank you for everyone in this room who you brought to salvation in Jesus Christ. And I thank you for those who may be here who do not yet know you, that in your providence they're here today. They've heard the gospel in the passage in Colossians and in the singing that we've done. And they'll hear it again before we're through. And we thank you that you brought them here where they can hear about Jesus Christ, that his light of salvation might shine on them. We pray for those who aren't with us, who are traveling and who may be ill, those who are sick, we ask that you would heal and bring back to us soon and bring back safely those who are traveling, we pray. For those of us who are here, I pray that you would just open our hearts to your word, that you would fill us with your spirit and with understanding so that we might correctly discern what it is that our Lord Jesus wishes to say to us in these words today. We ask these things, as always, for our good 
and most importantly for your glory and in the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. In the following illustration, uh, author Kent Hughes relates what he calls the experience of a certain young bachelor. Here's what he writes. Every time he brought a prospective wife home, his mother criticized her unmercifully. The young man was at his wit's end when a friend offered this advice, find someone like your mother. So he looked and looked until he found a clone. She looked like his mother. Her gait was like his mother. She talked like his mother. She even thought like his mother. It was amazing. So he took her home. The next time he saw the friend who had given the advice and was asked how his mother liked the girl, the bachelor answered, it went great. My mother loved her, but my father couldn't stand her. <laughs> now, the plight, the plight of this young man, I think, illustrates well how unbecoming a hypercritical spirit can be in a person. It is really hard to please someone like that, isn't it? And it's really hard to be around someone like that. We should all want to avoid becoming like that if we want to have healthy relationships and do not want to constantly alienate those around us. However, in the passage before us this morning, we will see an even more important reason not to be so hypercritical, namely that it is hypocritical as well as arrogant. Let's begin by taking a look at the central command here, and as we unpack this text, you'll see what I mean, I think. First of all, we see in the first part of verse 1 this very simple command, judge not. Now, many people misuse this verse in order to avoid being criticized or confronted with sin. In fact, I've heard not only believers, but also unbelievers say things like, Christians aren't supposed to judge, are they? Or if you say something to them, I thought Christians weren't supposed to judge. This is probably the most often misquoted verse in the Bible by unbelievers to whom I run into, right? And it's usually thought to pretty much end the argument whenever any judgment is made about a person's views or behavior. In fact, many seem to think that this verse advocates a universal acceptance of virtually any viewpoint or lifestyle. But when Jesus gave this command, he never intended us to suspend our critical faculties. Nor did he intend that we never make value judgments about the views or actions of other people. And those who take it that way are just plain wrong. See, I just made a judgment about them, right? First of all, they're wrong because their point makes no sense. It's inherently, internally inconsistent position to hold. For example, we run into this a lot today. Uh, when a person says that Christians are wrong for judging homosexuality to be sin because Christians aren't supposed to judge, we get that a lot. We get called homophobic and things like that, if we say what the Bible says, that homosexual practice is a sin. But when they say that to us, you have no right to judge me, they're themselves making a value judgment about Christians, namely that they're judging what they're doing is wrong. 
and they're wrong to do it. So they're doing the very thing they say shouldn't be done. They're judging. They're judging you for what they think you're judging them for, right? And this is because it's simply impossible to live in this world without making such judgments. You can't get through a day without making all kinds of value judgments about yourself and about other people because we live in a world created by God to be a moral world. Now, secondly, such an understanding of Jesus' admonition against judging ignores the context in which he gave this admonition. It yanks it out of context and makes it say something Jesus never intended. This notion that Christians are never supposed to make any moral judgments about the actions or views of other people is completely foreign to Jesus' way of thinking. And I'm going to prove it to you by looking at the context. First, we'll look at the preceding context and then the following context. Consider, for example, the following statements from the preceding context. Going back to verse 20, and we'll go there again later on because it's an important verse in the Sermon on the Mount that we've gone back to numerous times in our study. Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how can we ensure that our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees without making some judgment about their righteousness and our own? Got to make value judgments. Or what he says here makes no sense. He says in Matthew 6, 8a, don't be like them. And, and if you look through, remember, chapter 6, he's saying don't be like the hypocrites and don't be like the heathens. Uh, in, in the way they do things, that we have to be different than the world around us and these religious hypocrites. Of course, he makes that statement, and don't be like them, particularly about the praying of the hypocrites and the heathens. But we can endeavor to avoid being like them only if we make value judgments about what they're doing. How else could we endeavor to avoid being like them and to pray better than they do without seeing what is wrong with the way they pray and judging it to be wrong? That Jesus is saying it's wrong and that we should agree with him that it's wrong. So it's ultimately not our judgment, it's his. And we're adopting it, right? He goes on to say, for example, in Matthew 6, 12, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, certainly forgiving others means not having a judgmental attitude toward them. But doesn't it also mean that we must have already judged that they somehow sinned against us? And isn't that a moral judgment? Why else would we need to forgive them? See, laced throughout Jesus' teaching is this constant demand that we make moral judgments about other people. And about ourselves as well. At any rate, such examples from the preceding context indicate very clearly that our Lord Jesus could not possibly mean that we should never make moral judgments with regard to the behavior of others. But consider also a couple of passages from the following context. The very next verse after verse 5 of our text today, which we'll look at in some detail next week because I think it's an often misunderstood verse. It says this in Matthew 7, 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. 
Now, clearly, we're not to cast our pearls before swine, but if that's true, if we're not supposed to do that, don't we have to make some judgment about who the swine are? And isn't that a moral judgment? Later on in chapter 7, verses 15 and 16, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Now clearly we must make judgments about false teachers. Clearly Jesus wants us to judge false prophets as such based upon their words and their actions, which is what he means when he goes on to say that by their fruits you shall know them. We look at what they do, we make moral judgments about them, about the truth or error of their teaching and their way of life. He's commanding us to do that here. So whatever our Lord Jesus means by his commandment not to judge, he simply cannot mean that we give up discernment or making value judgments about the views, the words, the actions of others around us. What Jesus actually means will become plain as we consider what he goes on to say next. He says, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. When Jesus says that the measure we use to judge would be measured back to us, what does he mean? Who will measure it back to us? I think there are two possible answers to this question. Possible answer number one is this. Perhaps Jesus is saying that we will typically be judged by other people in the same way that we judge them. This is the approach that was taken by Elton Trueblood in his 1964 book entitled The Humor of Christ, which I wouldn't recommend. It's, It's not a very good book. In fact, it's a bad book. And he writes this in this book about this passage, about this verse. What then can Christ have meant? He is reported to have said, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. Here the irony is particularly sharp, he writes. You want to avoid judgment, do you? He can be understood as saying. Then be sure that you at least have the consistency to avoid it yourself. It is of the essence of judgment that it is always two-edged. People will apply to you the standard which you apply to others, and so indeed they ought to do. So he takes it clearly as we'll be judged by other people in the way we judge them. So be careful how you judge. If you don't want people judging you badly, don't judge them badly. Now, some clearly, like him, have understood the verse this way. And and I think it may be pointed out that Jesus does say later in verse 12, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. So there is this sort of principle of reciprocity that he brings out later. But Jesus doesn't say there that treating others as we want to be treated will necessarily result in their treating us the same way. Does he? This is, however, what Jesus is saying about judging others. He says that we will be judged in accordance with the way we judge others. That is a certainty he's talking about. So, although it may be true that others will tend to be judgmental toward us if we're judgmental toward them, which is probably true, 
I don't think the certainty with which Jesus says that this judging will happen really fits within the realm of these relationships. And that leads us to our second possible answer, and the one I obviously think is the right one. Possible answer number two. That Jesus is saying that we'll be judged by God according to the way we judge others. And I think that's the correct interpretation for several reasons. First of all, I think it better fits Jesus' description of a future judgment that is certain. He says, with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Not just that you could be. Not just that other people might treat you a certain way if you treat them badly. But that this will happen. Secondly, it better fits Jesus' apparent use of the divine passive here. And this is seen both in his statement that with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and in his statement that with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He's speaking the passive there. This is known as the divine passive, also referred to as the theological passive. You see this a lot in the New Testament, where authors will say things in the passive voice without expressing expressing who the subject is of the action, who's doing the action, right? But they, it's implied that it's God. It's understood that it's God, and therefore doesn't need to be spelled out. I mean, who is the one who judges everybody? God. You don't have to spell it out, so you can tell people, you will be judged, and everybody knows who you're talking about. And so this, happened, this sort of divine passive or theological passive happens throughout the New Testament. It's, it apparently happens consistently in Jesus' teaching. And it's thought that by some that this usage of the divine passive among Jews developed because of their aversion to pronouncing the divine name. And so they would just say things in the passive voice and the agents doing the work is understood to be God and they can avoid saying his name. But whatever the origin of this use of the divine passive, it is a common way of speaking by Jesus. In fact, we've seen it already a number of times in the Sermon on the Mount. To show you what I mean, let's just take a couple of the Beatitudes that we looked at months back. Um, in, in chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. By who? It's understood that it's God that will do this. This is this divine passive that's being used. The implied comforter is God. In Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The implied agent who will quench our thirst for righteousness is once again none other than God. In fact, only God could do this. Even so, the implied agent who will judge as we have judged others, is God as well. So that's the second reason, I think, in the context Jesus is speaking of the judgment of God. Third, and finally, I think the interpretation fits better uh, the context because Jesus has previously taught us to pray that we will be forgiven as we forgive others. And then he offered this explanation in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 6. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In other words, Jesus has already said that God's judgment of us 
will reflect how forgiving we are of other people. Now Jesus is asserting essentially the same principle here with regard to a judgmental attitude, which is also, by the way, usually an unforgiving attitude. These things go hand in hand. If we judge others without recognizing first our own sin and our own need for forgiveness, then we judge in arrogance and hypocrisy, don't we? A point that will come out even more as we move through the passage. And when we are so unforgiving and lacking in proper self-examination, then we're going to be judged accordingly. That's the point, as we'll see. If we habitually judge with an unforgiving heart, which... You remember when we looked at that passage, reveals an unregenerate heart, an unbelieving heart. Then we cannot expect God's forgiveness. He will judge us without mercy as we have judged others without mercy. And by the way, God sometimes reveals that judgment even in this life. But certainly in the end. Consider, for example, what Paul said to the Corinthians about God's judgment of their prideful attitudes and actions. In 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 28, Paul writes this with respect to how we approach the Lord's Supper. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Which in the context is not discerning your proper place in the body of Christ and your relationship to the others in it, and you treat them badly. That's the context, but we can't get into that now. He says, for this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So sometimes, true believers act badly toward other believers as they were doing in Corinth when they weren't waiting on those particularly who were poor and so forth before they partook of the Lord's Supper and they were leaving them out in their arrogance, in their selfishness. Well, it said some of you are dead now. Some of you are sick and some of you are dead because of the way you've been acting. And that's God teaching you a lesson. And the rest of you should repent. <laughs> he, wants to keep, he wants them to keep that in mind while they're examining themselves before they come to the Lord's Supper. Think about the people who aren't here anymore and why they're not here. And take this more seriously. So sometimes that can happen. Of course, at at first glance, that passage may seem to be dealing with an entirely different matter because it's dealing with partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. But the overall context, as I said, demonstrates that they're partaking in such an unworthy manner had to do primarily with how they arrogantly mistreated one another. And wrongly judging one another is a type of such mistreatment. In fact, if you go further into your study of First and Second Corinthians, what you'll find out is that there was a weaker, stronger brother problem in Corinth too. And they weren't treating each other very well. And they were making constant judgments about each other along those lines. I wonder how many people are dead in churches across this land or ill because they're hypercritical, hypocritical, judgmental people. Only God knows the answer to that. I've had my suspicions a few times over the years about some people going way back, 
none of you, I assure you. But getting back to what Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Matthew, it's also clear that he viewed God as the only ultimate judge. We should, therefore, be careful not to fall into the trap of assuming for ourselves that which is a divine prerogative. Remember what I said earlier, we make certain judgments because we're just adopting the judgment Jesus has made. That's not the same thing as me thinking I have the right to judge other people. Telling people what God says about what they're doing and saying that he has judged it is not the same thing as me thinking I have the right to stand in the place of God and judge them. But there are some people who seem to think that. And we should never think that. And those t- the people who seem to think that they can stand in God's place and make those judgments are usually religious hypocrites. The kind that say, do as I say, not as I do. And we're, we're like that when we're too quick to judge another person's motives, especially. As though we can know someone's heart. Which only God truly knows. We don't know anyone else's heart. Now, sometimes we can get a glimpse of what their heart is like by what they say and do because it's out of one's heart that their actions and their words flow. But we, and sometimes we can make pretty good guesses as to people's motives. We have to be careful even then. This is a point, I think, that the Apostle Paul made when he wrote in his epistle to the Romans, in Romans 2, 1 through 3, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man. This is Romans 2, 1 through 3. You are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for, whatever, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and do the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So one of the things Paul would have us remember, and I think Jesus wants us to remember, is whenever we're making judgments about other people, we first of all need to think about the fact that we stand before God's bar of judgment ourselves. That should literally put the fear of God into us when when we're making moral judgments about other people. Later in the same epistle, Paul also addressed the matter of judging in disputes about doubtful things, some of these weaker and stronger other issues. In Romans 14.4, he says, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. And further on, he adds in, in Romans 14, beginning verse 10, But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Now, the Paul who said that made all kinds of moral judgments about the, what the Romans were doing <laughs> with respect to this issue. So he, even he wasn't saying we don't make moral judgments at all. He's clearly talking about being careful, very careful 
about who we're judging and why we're judging them and how we're judging them. Because especially in the body of Christ, you're judging God's servant. You're judging someone for whom Christ died, who has the Holy Spirit, a child of God, a joint heir with Christ. Better be careful what you say and how you say it. That's Paul's point, right? That Jesus has this very kind of high-minded, hypocritical judging that Paul was clearly condemning in mind in the Sermon on the Mount becomes even more clear in verses 3 through 5. He says this, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Like you have a log in your own eye. This is almost comical, (laughs) this picture that he puts in our mind here. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and notice what he says, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice that he wants you to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You've identified a problem in your brother or sister in the Lord that you should help them with. You've made a judgment about some action, some behavior of theirs, something they've said or done that needs to be corrected. And Jesus is saying, don't think you shouldn't correct it. When I say judge not, I'm not saying that you shouldn't make judgments at all. I'm saying you first should look at yourself and take the beam out of your own eyes so you can see clearly to help your brother or sister with their problem. So even in his explanation of judge not that you be not judged, he's telling you to judge. So what he means by judge not that you be not judged is be careful how you judge. He makes it very clear here. Don't be like a hypocrite when you judge. And it's here where we find our clear connection to Jesus' teaching in the preceding context. So see if you picked up on what I think the clear connection is. To begin with, we once again should recall a major theme of the Sermon on the Mount that he announced back in verse five, or verse 20 of chapter 5. Remember he said, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And then the rest of what we know as chapter 5 are these six antitheses about things like anger and adultery, right? You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that even if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already. So he was challenging what the hypocrites, the scribes and the Pharisees, their kind of righteousness where they picked and chosen what they wanted you to you know, obey from Scripture, and they found ways to make it easier to obey and look righteous, and they didn't focus on the heart like they should have, and he gave six examples of things like that. And then he shifted in chapter 6, what we know as chapter 6 anyway, to dealing with things like doing charitable deeds and praying, Right? and uh, religious practices. And it's here where this word hypocrite starts to show up. That's the key word, hypocrite. In chapter 6, verse 2, at the beginning of the verse, he says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. And in the context, the hypocrites are the scribes and Pharisees, right, who are distorting the law. 
about whom he's been giving examples already. So you don't give alms, you don't do charitable deeds like hypocrites do. And chapter 6, verse 5, the beginning of verse there, he says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. And then in verse 16, he says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. So he, talk, he started off talking about the scribes and Pharisees. Your righteousness has got to be a lot better than this phony righteousness that they possess. Then he gives, in, through these antitheses in chapter 5, examples of that. And then he gives further examples in their religious practice of how they're hypocrites. So when we turn our attention back to this morning's text that flows from that discussion in chapter 6, we may see that our Lord Jesus does not want us to be like the hypocrites in yet one more way, namely in how we deal with brothers who are struggling with sin. If you go and try to take the speck out of someone else's eye, which in the larger context is what the Pharisees and scribes are constantly doing, and don't realize you have a plank in your own eye, which is the problem constantly with the scribes and Pharisees. All you have to do is read the Gospels. Even in a cursory reading of the Gospels, you'll see that they were constantly hypercritical, hypocritical people in their judgments of others. They did this to Jesus constantly and to his disciples and to other people. He doesn't want us to be that way. He doesn't want us to be that way. He doesn't want us to be self-righteously and nitpickingly judgmental like they were. Indeed, we see that Jesus uses hyperbole here to show how ridiculous it is to assume that we can sit on judgment on others without having first examined ourselves. But as I said earlier, he also makes it quite clear that he wants us to remove the speck from our brother's eye. It's not good that he has a speck in his eye. And, and in the context, this must be some moral failure of some kind. It's not good for our brother or sister that that's the case. We, we should want to help them. Not like the scribes and Pharisees would do it. Not with some holier-than-thou hypocritical attitude in which we think we're better than them when we're not. This brings us to the final question here, and that's how do we apply this rather comical little kind of parable about the beam sticking out of someone's eye to ourselves? How should we learn from it about how to properly make moral judgments and to challenge sin when we, when we need to. And I'm not saying we should challenge every speck in every brother or sister's eye. The Bible also says that love cov covers a multitude of sins. Uh, folks, if, if we were going to try to take every speck out of every brother or sister's eye that we could possibly see, that's all we would ever be doing. And that we, it wouldn't be a very gracious place to live. It's another way of becoming pharisaical. right? We don't want to do that either. But when we see that a brother or sister's got some impediment, some moral problem that's hurting them and other people and that can't be easily overlooked or tolerated for a while before it's gently talked about or something like that. What do we do then? We have to do something. Jesus wants us to. In fact, it's unloving not to do something. Well, how do we do that? Well, first, as we've seen from the text, 
we should recognize that we all have a tendency to see even the smallest errors in others before we see the larger ones in ourselves. That's clearly one thing Jesus is teaching here. We're very good at overlooking even our greatest faults where we see the smallest faults in other people. In fact, this is often one way we deflect attention from our own sin, isn't it? By pointing at others. A.B. Bruce poignantly described such a tendency as, quote, a Pharisaic vice that of exalting ourselves by disparaging others, a very cheap way of attaining moral superiority, he says. He's right. This tendency is also what often makes us too quick to judge. But we should remember what Jesus taught in another passage as well. In John 7, 24, we have these words of Jesus. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That certainly means we shouldn't judge too quickly. There's all the difference in the world between the righteous judgment that our Lord Jesus advocates here in the passage we're looking at and the self-righteous judgments that he condemns. And that's what he's condemning. Self-righteous, hypocritical judgment. Secondly, we should never think that we're ready to confront a brother or sister about some sin of theirs until we have first examined ourselves to discover whether or not we're seeing clearly. If I can't see my own sin, how on earth do I think I can clearly see the sin in someone else really? Third, and finally, after we have properly examined ourselves, we must fulfill our responsibility to our brother by removing the speck that we've seen by helping that brother or sister with the problem. After all, as I've said, our Lord Jesus wants, to, wants us to correct our brothers and sisters in this way, and he's telling us how to do it properly. He's telling us how to do it humbly rather than hypocritically. And he expects us to make the value judgments that are necessary in order for us to do this as we should. Again, it is impossible to follow Christ, to live in this world without making value judgments about the behavior of people around us, whether they're in or outside the body of Christ. We should just do it in a Christ-like way. We should do it as sinners saved by grace who every time we see someone caught in a sin know in the very depths of our being there but by the grace of God go I. And then I'm not any better than that person. I am a sinner saved by God's grace. And I don't deserve his love any more than they do. And that will change. That will change how you talk to that person. Paul, again, taught, this, I think, the same principle when he wrote this to the Galatians in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. 
and we could be tempted in different ways. One way we could be tempted is we could be tempted to fall into the same sin. But another way we could be tempted is to think we're better than them. Look down on them. That's why he says, you who are spiritual, and in the larger context of Galatians, that means someone who's got some spiritual maturity. I would go so far as to argue that if we see a brother in error and refuse to help him, we're not demonstrating Christian love. But what about the person who won't listen? Now, suppose we've done everything right. Suppose that we've really examined ourselves and we know in our heart of hearts we've come with the sincerest of intentions of love for that brother or sister. We've come in a humble way recognizing that we're no better than them. In fact, most of us probably think we're worse. And we've come as gently and lovingly as we possibly can, but they still won't listen. What about then? Well, that's next week in verse 6. Jesus actually handles that in verse 6. I'm, I'm giving you a preview of next week. So we'll, we'll talk about that next week. I'll just conclude simply with the reminder that we're all called as Christians to care enough about our brothers and sisters in Christ to humbly confront them with the truth when they're caught in a sin. And we're called to proclaim repentance from sin and faith in Christ to a lost and dying world. And that means naming sins. If you tell someone you're a sinner and needs to be saved, and they say, what do you mean sin? What sin? You're going to have to start talking about sin. And you're going to have to start getting particular. And you're going to become quickly unpopular. Especially in this day and age. But we're called to do this. We can't avoid it. We're called to make such value judgments, not because we're the authority, but because God, in his word, has told us his judgments about these things. And he's given us the answer that people need to hear to their sin problem as well. I pray that God will give us the grace to do this as we should. And the wisdom not to listen to the people around us when we do call out sins in our culture and the lives of other people. When they say, Christians aren't supposed to judge. Our response should be, oh yes we are. Oh yes we are. In the sense that we're supposed to tell you what God's judgment is about what you're doing. By the way, it was his judgment on me too. But he saved me. And he can save you. If he can save me, he can save anybody. He can save you too. Let's pray. Holy Father, for those of us who do know you and have been perhaps convicted in some way, uh, please forgive us for whatever judgmental or hypocritical attitudes we've wrongly had. There's a little bit of a Pharisee in every one of us, I'm sure because there's indwelling sin that we're still battling. And Lord, we need, it, we need to put to death that old inner Pharisee and become more like Christ. So help us, I pray, through the power of your spirit to do that, to turn from our own hypocrisy at times, our own arrogance, 
and just renew a repentant heart before you, asking you to once again forgive us, knowing that we have an advocate with the Father, that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And we thank you for that, Lord. For anyone who is here today who has not come to know you, we pray that you would do for him or her what you have done for those of us who know you. Open their eyes that they may see their own sin and their need for a Savior, and that they may see Jesus for who he really is, who is fully God and fully man and lived a perfectly righteous life, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves was able to die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins and who rose from the dead and conquered death on our behalf and who offers us salvation as a free gift that cannot be earned, that must be accepted as a free gift. Oh, Lord, I pray that you'd help him or her to trust in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for their salvation. And we'll give you all the glory for what you do because we knew you're the only one who deserves it. We pray all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention. I hope it has been helpful to you.